Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. We're currently studying Revelation verse by verse, and we're in the middle of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in chapter 2. Today we look at the church in Thyatira and the warning about the woman Jezebel who was leading believers astray. Let's dive in, beginning with a little history on this city and the environment that the Christians lived in. Here is Pastor Alex Contaroja. Okay, we will continue our study in this book of Revelation, and we find ourselves in the fourth letter to the seven churches, and that is this letter to Thyatira. And the title of our message today is The Woman Jezebel. How many of us have heard Jezebel? How many of us know someone named Jezebel? Oh, yeah, no hands are raised, right? There probably isn't any woman in all the world that is named Jezebel. There's people named Jesus, Jesus. I have never heard of a Jezebel. Now, if there is, you know. But I think that's also kind of by design because she's kind of a unique figure in and of itself. Um, so as we you know, pick up in this letter, we will be introduced to this woman and as we, we continue to do is, you know, look to see what, what can we learn about her through the scripture and then, you know, what was behind, you know, Jesus using or calling her out and using her as an example. And I kind of want to level set with us, um, you know, as we're studying Revelation. I know it can be very, it could be a bit much. Um, I can tell you, you know, if it's a bit much, you know, for, you know, for myself, and I'm the one who's, who's kind of going through and plowing, then I can imagine on your side. But, you know, I guess uh, the best way to kind of stay on course with this study is we, we really need to look at it in this historical context. We really need to look at it. So this was written to the first, you know, in the first century to that first century church. And once we understand at least just the immediate context that it's written to them, that's already kind of half the battle. Right? Okay, it's written to them, to, to a specific people, specific time, and we're just trying to understand the circumstances that was going on, you know, what was going on around them. Then, when you kind of look at it that way, just kind of understand, just like the Word of God is, it goes beyond them. Yeah, it's written to them, but it's also foretelling to the future. And it covers up to and including the return of Christ and the end of the age and the end of the world. Um, so it should be no surprise to us um, when you hear the news, the world's going to end. It's going to end. The world right now, it's been going on for the thousands of years that it has, but the time is going to come when the world will end. And the scripture tells us that's not, just, that's not the end, that's really the beginning of the eternal state. So when we're studying prophecy, we're studying it in a point in time, or we're studying scripture, we're studying it in a point in time, but then just keep in mind that this does have a landing spot. And it's all centered around the coming of our Lord, the establishment of his kingdom, the judgment of all mankind, and then ultimately leading to the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So just when we're studying Revelation, we're, that's all we're doing is, okay, we're, we're doing a lot of history, and we're going to do the same thing here. We're going to do it through all the seven letters. And, you know, interesting, like when you kind of like follow where we are, we're only in chapter two. So John is exiled in Patmos because of the persecution of the Christian faith and him being an apostle. 
and we've talked extensively on kind of what he's, he and the other apostles and the believers kind of went through and a lot of the, the persecution. But just know that John wrote this in the first century, and he was given this great vision, and this great vision was very relevant to the people in that time. But this great vision that he was commanded to write is, yeah, applicable, more applicable to them, but it also speaks to all believers through all time. That's why we're studying the Scripture. So just because the Scripture wasn't written to us, we weren't in Thyatira, that doesn't mean that the instruction and the correction and the exhortation doesn't apply to you and I. It applies to us all. So that's so what we're going to do is we're going to try to understand it in its context. So here in Thyatira, when Thyatira gets this letter, a lot of things will start to hopefully make sense. Why did Jesus use these descriptions of himself? If you think about it, if he has like, let's just say Jesus has a hundred designations and titles that he can pull from. How come he pulls certain ones in certain letters to a certain church? It's because of what they're surrounded with. And Jesus is pretty much saying, hey, I know it doesn't look like he's on the throne, uh, you know, his father's on the throne and that he's sitting on the right, uh, standing, uh, sitting at the right hand of the father. You know, as Christians right now, it doesn't look like God's in control, does it? It didn't look like God was in control back then. But Jesus is saying, you know, here is the one. And he describes himself in very graphic terms, saying, yeah, although there's all this idol worship, temple worship, offers of sacrifice, and God is allowing it, and it seems like that's just the world, God is saying, hey, he is the one with the seven stars in his right hand. The seven star, I mean, and the seven stars are representative of the seven angels over the seven churches. He has authority even over the demons that are accepting worship at this point in time. So that's very relevant for them. It's very relevant for us. And it's an encouragement for us to know that even though it wasn't written to us at that time, it, it really is pretty much kind of the, the same story, just a different time, if that makes sense. So with that, we will continue our study in the look to the seven churches. And right now we are in Thyatira. So Thyatira is the fourth letter and it's right in the middle of these seven letters. There was three before it, three after it. Thyatira is right in the middle. And Thyatira happens to be the longest letter, verse-wise, compared, um, compared to the other letters. So we will spend maybe a little more time here than we've had in the letters to the other churches. So with that being said, we are still uh, setting-wise... From a geographic standpoint, we're still in ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So all of these seven letters, or these seven churches and these seven letters that were being delivered to them, the churches are all on the west of Asia Minor, or what we know as Turkey. So they're all pretty close to each other in vicinity, as is indicated here on the map. And as, as a reminder, there, um, Patmos was just off the coast of what we know as Turkey today. And John was exiled there. How many of us even said Thyatira before? <laughs> oh, right? You know, this for me, it, it hasn't really come out of my, my lips, but it was an actual church. It was an actual city, you know, um, a church in that city. Um, so what we'll do is we'll look at Thyatira first from the scripture. What can it tell us? And then what does you know, the historical, uh, what does history tell us and what's the historical context so that we can kind of get a feel. My goal in this whole thing is, is we're there. 
like living. You know, right now we probably watch movies of, you know, of time, you know, of ancient times. I'm trying to really, you know, uh, do my best to kind of get us a flavor of what it is, because then that's way we can at least kind of relate to what they might have been going through or understand what they're going through, and then when they hear the message, they would, we would also hear it too. It's a good practice for us. You know, we, we, you know, one thing we want to be careful of doing is making the Bible kind of your personal diary. It's, you know, the, the, the Bible is the Word of God. We need it. We need it. it. It is our food. You know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. But we want, we want to be careful is that we're making the Bible, you know, fit to our particular situation rather than understanding kind of the glories of God, you know, and the truth of God revealed in Scripture and allowing that to encourage and strengthen our faith so that we could withstand you know, whatever life, you know, throws our way. So um, we're going to do that also as we cont- we're going to follow the, you know, these disciplines as we uh, continue to study this marvelous book. So what does scripture have to tell us about Thyatira? Well, Thyatira is mentioned only once apart from Revelation, and that was in Acts 16. And how many of us have heard of Lydia in scripture, right? We've heard of Lydia. Well, there's an association here with Thyatira and Lydia. So what we'll do is, since it's only mentioned once, apart from Revelation, and it was in Acts 16, let's go ahead and read the account, see where that association is. We're introduced to a gal named Lydia, and then we'll see you know, how that can be, how could that, how could that inform us of understanding this city and town. Um, so in Acts 16, this was during Paul's second missionary journey, and he made a stop in Philippi, and we'll pick it up in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to Riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the only other time Thyatira was mentioned, apart from Revelation, was from this encounter that Lydia had with Paul and Silas. And she was from there, And her and her household believed because the scripture tells us that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So not only did she believe, but her household believed. And then to show her appreciation for, you know, Paul and Silas bringing the gospel, she wanted to show them hospitality and she urged them and they accepted. So after that introduction of Lydia, when you kind of continue to read Acts, They continued to meet regularly in Philippi and presumably on the Sabbath day. And then we're introduced after Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple, is introduced. Then you continue on. We're introduced to a slave girl having a spirit of divination. So let's read that account in um, Acts 16.16. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her master as much profit by fortune-telling. 
following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city, Philippi, into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. So after we're introduced to Lydia, they continue to meet weekly, and there is this demon-possessed slave girl that was pretty much calling out who they were, that they were bondservants of the Most High God, and that gone on for days, and then Paul, just annoyed, cast the spirit out of her, but this slave girl through this spirit of divination, that was a source of income for her masters. So when Paul drove out the spirit, no longer can she do the divination. So by the way, if, if you ever wondered fortune telling, is that, you know, is that real? <laughs> yeah. De- demons, divination, that's real. It's happened here in the scripture. Here is a slave girl with the spirit of divination who had some influence that brought a prophet, in this case for her masters, but after Paul casted out the demon, then you know, the, the, the owners, you know, being upset, pretty much seized Paul and Silas and brought them before the authorities. And after now Paul and Silas are brought before the authorities, we're introduced to a familiar figure. Um, how many of us have heard of the Philippian, uh, Philippian jailer? You know, sirs, what must I do to be saved? that famous kind of saying, and this is preached quite a bit, you know, as part of the, the, the gospel proclamation. But after they were beaten and thrown in prison and commanded to be placed under protective watch, a Philippian jailer, you know, starts to, um, you know, uh, was tasked with guarding them. And at about midnight, it says, Paul and Silas sang hymns to God. How many of us sang hymns to God at midnight? While in chains, I'm telling you, you know, when we're studying scripture, you know, how much of a Christian are we feel like, you know, a lot smaller? Well, when it comes to the apostle Paul and Silas, they got beaten. First, they're preaching the gospel. They cast out a demon. They get seized. They get beaten, dragged. They're thrown into prison. And they're probably in a dungeon, uncomfortable at midnight. And you know what? You think they're complaining? They're praising God. So they're singing hymns to God. And then what happened was there was a great earthquake and it unfastened the prison doors and the chains. And at that time, the scripture tells us that the jailer who was tasked to watch them woke up you know, from the earthquake and seeing you know, the, the gates open, presuming that the prisoners escaped, the, the, the Philippian jailer was going to kill himself because back then, if you know, you're a soldier and there's a prisoner under your watch that gets away, if they do, that's your life. So he was just going to take his own life. But then Paul and, and Silas interjected, saying, don't kill yourself, we're still here. The Philippian, jail, the Philippian jailer is kind of alarmed, like, wow, you guys didn't escape. But the Philippian jailer knows what's going on, knows who they are, at least who they're claiming to be. And then this jailer at that point says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas responded their famous words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
So there's the gospel succinctly right there. And the jailer believed, and so did his family, and they got baptized and were saved. And then the jailer, just like Lydia, when she got saved, provided hospitality to them. The scripture tells us that the jailer, after him and his family got saved, they cared for them and provided hospitality. And then the next day, the chief magistrates gave an order to release Paul and Silas. And Paul, bothered by their mistreatment, asked them to personally send them away by themselves. So just kind of, this is a little tidbit here. So when the order was given for Paul and Silas to be beaten and thrown into prison by the chief magistrates, the authorities there, the next day, they just sent a messenger saying, hey, you know what, they can go. And Paul was like, no, you come here and you send us away. You know, pretty much. You know what, the thing about Paul, when you read his letters, he seems a little meek. No, he, he, he will also stand for, he, he will stand for what is right too. Well, I went through all that to get to this. And this is going to tie in the Thyatira, okay? In uh, Acts 16.40, they, Paul and Silas, went out of the prison, so when they were released, they, it says, entered the house of Lydia, who was from Thyatira, and when they, Paul and Silas, saw the brethren in Lydia's house, they encouraged them and departed. So I went through all that to get to this point. Lydia, who was from Thyatira, the only mention in Scripture, was the first home church in Philippi. So in some of your Bibles, on the, on the top, when it comes to the Lydia account, it might say the first Europe, European, uh, Europe convert, or first convert in Europe. It's because Philippi is around Greece, Europe, what we know today. But um, there was brethren there. So after her and her family received, uh, believed the gospel and showed hospitality to Paul and Silas, they had home church. So after Paul got out of prison, he went to join them and the brethren there. So it's possible that if you're wondering, how did the church in Thyatira start? Well, it's possible that it was founded upon the preaching of the Apostle Paul, where Lydia and her family were from, and then believers began to meet at her house. So all that is to say, because Lydia is from Thyatira, a seller of purple, you know, you know, maybe having to go home, and the brethren there might have been in that area, they could have pretty much not only had that home church in Philippi, but then also found, you know, found each other and began to have a home church in Thyatira. So if you were to ask me, who do I think is responsible for establishing the church in Thyatira? I think it is from the preaching of the Apostle Paul and the association of Lydia, you know, was, was part of that and here's an interesting note. In fact, Thyatira in Greek is Thuatira, which means the city of Lydia. So even this Thyatira means city of Lydia. And, that all, and the only Lydia mentioned in the Bible happens to be there. So though, remember, if the scripture gives us little, I'm going with that. I'm seeing what can we, what can we learn about Thyatira. So that's really all the scripture has to tell us concerning Thyatira. Now, what does history tell us? Let's look at some history. So Thyatira was established under the Adelid dynasty, and I've mentioned this dynasty a few times throughout the other letters. So pretty much after the death of Alexander the Great, the, the world at that time it was broken up into four, but then subsequently after the death 
of Alexander and the division and the parcel out of the land, ultimately the Adelid dynasty came to power, and they're also known as the kingdom of Pergamum. So Thyatira was established under that Adelid dynasty. So this is after Alexander the Great, and it was eventually integrated as part of the kingdom of Pergamum. So it was kind of an expansion. Remember, they're, they're, if you remember back to the map, they're pretty close to each other. So when the Adelaide dynasty came to power, Thyatira was integrated as part of that dynasty. So Thyatira did become a part of Rome when the Adelaide dynasty ended, and that's around 133 BC. And if you're wondering, what is Thyatira today? It is the modern town Akisar in Turkey. And what's interesting about and what we're learning um, even now, there's a lot of great excavations happening in Turkey. And there's a lot of findings in these ex- excavations. And we're seeing videos, you know, how we've been supplementing our, our teaching with, you know, with actual videos to kind of bring us there to see what's going on. But these excavations are bringing a lot of discovery that, you know, will help us understand you know, this, this ancient town. But what, what they're finding in these excavations in Thyatira, just like it was in the other churches through inscriptions or whether it's coins, um, they found, you know, figures such as Zeus, Artemis, Apollo, Demeter, and Athena. So just like the other churches. Um, and when you kind of think about when Alexander the Great pretty much went through his conquest and conquered the world, this Hellenistic kind of culture that you hear, this Greek, they influenced the world for Greek. But then part of that was also, you know, we get introduced to mythology, you know, to to the Olympic gods and goddesses, and that has definitely infiltrated the world at this time. And as we can see, that is um, continuing to be the case with all of these seven churches um, in that same region. Um, but there was a particular also coin that was discovered that suggests that a temple was also built to the Roman Emperor Vespian. And we've covered this, you know, as far as kind of um, depending on the town. I mean, many of them had temples and shrines to gods and goddesses and even deified kings. Um, but also, in some cases, certain towns got to make temples for certain emperors. And for when it comes to Thyatira, there, there was a coin that would suggest that there, was, there may have been a temple um, erected for the Roman Emperor Vespian. And just as Smyrna was known for myrrh and Pergamum was known for parchments, Thyatira was known for its dyes, in particular purple dye. Uh, and Lydia, as the scripture tells us, was a seller of purple now, a little bit about kind of this commodity of, of a purple dye. And one last thing to note is, as we'll see, that Thyatira also had Jews living there, and they were influenced by the prophetess Jezebel, who promoted lust and sex. So as far as influences from these Greek gods, Hephaestus and Aphrodite definitely had their influence in many shapes and forms. So in summary, Thyatira, much like Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum that we've studied thus far, was very much influenced by the Hellenistic 
and they were entrenched with many gods, goddesses, and emperor worship. So when I mentioned earlier, I want us to try to get there. Just kind of keep in mind that this is what's going on. There's temples everywhere, shrines. There's silversmiths making little idols. Remember, we know that from you know, Artemis you know, um, of the Ephesians. And when we're studying these letters, just know that this is the believer. The believer is living there. It was all around them. You know, right now we don't have a temple worship for prostitution. But there you can just walk in. And in fact, as we will see, that is associated with the deep things of Satan. Um, So it was definitely promoted and propagated. So some of the influences that the believers had claimed to have secret wisdom. And as I mentioned, deep things of Satan. So could you just imagine just for a moment, you're a believer in Thyatira. And you have someone who, let's say, is listening to Jezebel and who's teaching that, no, like actually if you want this kind of nirvana experience, a spiritual experience, and know the deep things of Satan. I don't even know. I mean, if you, can you imagine if you say deep things of Satan? That should normally turn people away, but that might be actually something that is a turn on for some other people. But that's kind of the influence um, that we're, these believers were experiencing, and we will see that. And that, that'll help us understand why Jesus calls out Jezebel. And, you know, when Jesus says, the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. In Thyatira, they were known for their guilds with silversmiths and, you know, those who work with metals and this Hephaestus God, it's fitting that Jesus would use similar language that they're familiar with this God of the blacksmiths. And he's saying, well, I'm the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and my feet are like burnished bronze. Pretty much saying, oh, you think that that's a God? Well, he is the God of gods, if that makes sense. And, broken, um, and Jesus also um, uses broken pottery terms, which could all very well be descriptive of characteristics of this ancient city. So that's a, just a little bit of just kind of the setting to help us understand this ancient town. Uh, with that, are we ready to look at the scripture and see what it has to say? So we're in Revelation 2. We'll pick it up in verse 18, and I'll be reading from the NAS. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. He says, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. 
But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the, vessel, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that is the letter to the angel over this church. So with that, let's, let's walk through this. We'll pick it up again in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. You can hear me being a broken record when it says, and to the angel, it is to the messenger, the agalos. And I'm arguing that there is an angel that was assigned over the church in Thyatira. Jesus is not only speaking to the angel, but it's also speaking to the believers. So throughout these seven letters, there is this dual audience that's being addressed and Jesus calls himself here the son of God and what at least for me as I'm just kind of doing my just kind of looking through it remember I mentioned earlier Jesus has a lot of titles to pull from he is the son of God but in the entire book of Revelation the only time he called himself the son of God was here in the letter to Thyatira I'm like wow so but he 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 uses um, a lot of other different titles and designations, but I thought I'd call that out. Eyes like flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. And when we've covered you know, chapter 1, and we went back to the scripture to also inform us, okay, we know from a historical setting that he could be alluding to the, you know, the gods or goddesses that they might know, and he's saying he is the you know, preeminent one over them. But also, what the scripture, the scripture also informed us that when Jesus is described with eyes like flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, that the scripture tells us is is telling us something. So, does anyone remember what that means? Man, you'll get brownie points if you remember this. What does it kind of sound like? His eyes are like flame of fire. What is being communicated? Speak up. Judgment. Yes. What, is the, what did John the Baptist say? You know, that his winnowing fork is at the threshold, right? And he will grab, you know, and the time will come when the chaff will be, you know, pretty much burned with unquenchable fire. So fire is associated with judgment. Um, how about his feet are like burnished bronze? Does anyone remember that? Old it was Old Testament. Well, eyes of, like flame of fire is associated with judgment, wrath, and destruction. You don't want to be under the fire. When, you don't want the Son of God, the glorified Son of Man, when His eyes are like flame of fire, you do not want to be in front of Him. That's not good. It's not good. It's not this loving Jesus. It's another one. Judgment, wrath, and destruction. But when it says His feet are like burnished bronze, we learn that that is associated with being holy, set apart, and a memorial offering to God as Father. So verse 18, this very first verse, is reiterating that Jesus is ready to examine and judge 
the churches, and in this case, the church in Thyatira, and render a verdict from heaven through the eyes of unquenchable fire by the Son of God, who was a most holy and perpetual offering to God his Father. And as we covered in our intro, you know, these were also descriptive characteristics of this city entrenched in idol worship. There was Apollo, the sun god, Hephaestus, the god of bronze and forge, etc. So as, I, as we're going through these letters, I really think that these descriptions of him are very pointed so that when the reader hears it, in this case the believers in Thyatira, they will be reminded that the Son of God is the one that not only deserves our worship, but also should, you know, should get our attention for, you know, versus worshiping idols. So let's look at verse 19. He goes, verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and, pers- and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. And as we're studying these letters to the seven churches, there's a consistent kind of theme. He will introduce himself. He's the one who's speaking. He will acknowledge their situation. And he will give a verdict. And if there is something that worth commending, he'll commend it. Or condemnation, he would condemn it or exhortation. And then it ends with a promise. <clears throat> so he acknowledges their situation. Remember, in, in, in the very first chapter, when John was given this great vision and he heard a loud voice behind him and he turned around, he saw this glorified Son of Man walking amongst the seven lampstands. And the seven lampstands, as we've learned, were representative of the seven churches. So here, when he says, I know your deeds, um, one of those lampstands was Thyatira, And he's now saying, I know, Oida, he is fully aware of their deeds. And when you see deeds in Scripture, think about your behavior, your actions, your deeds, what you do. Their love, agape, faith, service, and perseverance. And he also calls out, he says, their deeds of late are greater than at first. And if you remember when we studied Ephesus, one of the characteristics of Ephesus was that they left. He goes, I have this against you. I have this to say. You have left your first love. Repent, therefore, and remember, and do the deeds that you did before. But Thyatira, they didn't leave their first love. He's actually saying, well, you're doing more as of late than you did at first. Their, their good deeds and their behavior, with, with some respect, was, was increasing. So Jesus is saying, hey, I, I know. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. But he says, but. And I think for us, in, even in our English vernacular, you know if someone wants to give you constructive criticism and says, oh, you got this going for you, or this, this, and this, you know, you try to, you know, you're like, okay, great. But when you say, but... What happens to all the things that you just said? Whew. What takes front and center? But. It kind of negates what was said. You don't want a but. Their condemnation in verse 19 is now overshadowed because Jesus says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, for she led my bondservants astray. 
because she taught that it was okay and right to commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idol. So from here in verse 20, we're going to look at this woman Jezebel, which is the title of our study, and how she led and influenced Jesus' bondservants astray. So let's look at when Jesus says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Remember, we also have some disciplines and principles that we've been following throughout this whole study. You, who's you? The believers in Thyatira. Tolerate. Okay. See, you know, for us, when we hear the word tolerate, we might think, you know what, I'm putting up with you. That's not what the Greek means here. Tolerate is aphiemi. It means to let oneself go. So, let's say the temptation of the lust in the flesh was so much that you let yourself go. That's what tolerate, aphiemi. She was teaching this, and you let yourself go. The woman Jezebel, we're all familiar with that name, and I want to suggest it's probably the most evil female name of all time. Does anyone have any other candidates for that? What do you think is the most evil woman name that you can think of? It's probably Jezebel. And as we've customarily done, this is what we're going to do. So don't name your kid Jezebel. Jesus saying you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Of course, our minds... And it should incite us to be reminded of the Jezebel of the Old Testament as well. So before we look at who Jesus is talking about here, let's look at the original Jezebel in the Old Testament so that we can understand better what Jesus, where Jesus was going behind this phrase. So the first mention of Jezebel in Scripture was in 1 Kings 16. Here's the setting. King Ahab, or Ahab was king of Israel at this time. This, we're at the divided kingdom at this point. Ahab was the king of Israel. Asa was the king of Judah. And Ahab, the scripture describes him, to have surpassed the sins of the kings before him. So from Jeroboam, which was the first Israel king, and the kings that followed, by the time we get to Ahab, Ahab was the most wicked Israel king by, by the, when the time he took power. He, he, he had the kings before him beat. And it was this king Ahab, the king of Israel, he married Jezebel. And Jezebel influenced Ahab to serve and worship Baal. And part of that worship would include, you know, making carved images What was the second commandment? Well, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What was the second commandment? You shall not make yourself a graven image. Well, Ahab, influenced by Jezebel, they made carved images. And here's here's a kind of a picture here that is believed to be, you know, kind of what they were carving so that they can see something to worship. But part of this Baal worship not only included carved images, temple prostitution, And I mentioned this before, in the Baal worship was also included in that is the offering up of children in sacrifice. Could you just imagine as a mother back in ancient, ancient times, you want to show worship and reverence to Baal who you worship. You just gave birth to your baby and now you're going to offer this baby 
in sacrifice to this Baal. Crazy, but it, it, it's a part of world history. So Ahab then erected an altar for Baal in Samaria. And this is all in 1 Kings 16. And when you're reading the Old Testament, sometimes you'll also read the worship or, or the, um, the erection of the Asherah. And the Asherah was an image of a, uh, of a fertility mother goddess. So there's this mother goddess that was part of this worship of Asherah. And as, as we've kind of learned, in, even in the, the Greek mythology, there's a lot of kind of mother gods, mother of fertility. There was, you know, Cybele, Artemis, Aphrodite. Kind of sounds like Virgin Mary too, doesn't it? She's a mother god. Anyhow, this provoked God to anger. Then we get to a, fam- a very familiar figure, Elijah. So this is the time of Elijah. It was then Elijah confronted Ahab and pronounced a drought. And as a result, there was a drought and a great famine in the land for three and a half years. And it was during the time of the drought, the scripture tells us in 1 Kings 18, you know what Jezebel did? She destroyed the prophets of the Lord. But we also have an account that Obadiah hid a hundred prophets in a cave and provided them with bread and water. But Jezebel killed God's prophets. Then we have the famous showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Carmel. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. And we're all familiar with that account, right? It was one man, Elijah. The, the prophets that were alive were in hiding. He's the only one out kind of in the public eye. And it was a showdown between the prophet of the Lord, who was Elijah, and the prophets of Baal. And there was a showdown. One man versus 450. You know the story. Elijah is victorious in this great showdown. And he commanded that the prophets of Baal be seized and killed. So God came through for his prophet in this showdown. And the prophets of Baal were killed and the drought ends. Well, Queen Jezebel hears of this that the prophets of Baal were killed. So she sends a message. Tell Elijah that that'll be you. I want to say, you know, within the day. And we get the account. You know, Elijah runs for his life. You're like, wait, wait. Elijah, at your word, God commanded fire to come out of heaven to consume the sacrifice and the water. Burn it up. And this woman threatens your life, but she was the queen, granted, and he runs. A little side note there, but God is with him and still provides for him and will have him come back eventually. And the next time we hear of Jezebel, after that, remember, we're going to the Old Testament. We want to know, who is this Jezebel? Okay, she was the queen of Israel, married to Ahab, and she caused Ahab to, into Baal worship They erected altars for Baal. They erected the Asherah. And they caused the people of Israel to worship Baal. And what we also know about Jezebel is, yes, she killed the prophets. She threatened Elijah. And now, the next time we hear after that threat and Elijah flees, she made a plot to murder a man named Naboth 
for his vineyard that Ahab coveted. So if you kind of read the account, King Ahab coveted this man's vineyard. And he asked them for it. And, the, and Naboth said no. And Ahab pouted. I'm just using my own word. Like, oh, you know, I want it. His covetousness. His wife, Queen Jezebel, says, are you not the king? Well, anyhow, Jezebel plots to have Naboth killed. And she did. And now she says, the man's dead. Take it for yourself. And Ahab, he didn't condemn her for such an evil plot. You can say he was, a consp- you know, he was, he aided and abetted it. So then God through Elijah, now Elijah comes back and he pronounces judgment against Ahab and Jezebel and both will be killed. But here's what's interesting. And as I'm reading the story, Elijah pronounces judgment for their evil and that they will be killed. When Elijah said those words, Ahab repented. And it says, because he repented, I will not kill you or I'll hold my judgment until your son after you. And then ultimately, when you read the story, it's interesting. Jezebel is ultimately killed by Jehu, who became the king of Israel because God, that was God's next king in line for Israel. She was thrown over something, kind of splattered. So in summary, Jezebel was the queen of Israel who used her position of authority and influence to cause Ahab and the people of Israel to engage in Baal and Asherah worship, and that would include sexual immorality and eating meat sacrificed to idols. So that's the Jezebel of the Old Testament. Now let's go back to verse 20. So when Jesus said, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, I want to say this, and, and I'm, I'm thankful for our rules of engagement and the, 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 the 10 principles and disciplines that we're exercising. Let's not go straight to over-spiritualize the text. Oh, Jezebel, the spirit Jezebel, and, and somehow just making this over-spiritualization of this passage. Let's resist that. Let's not over-spiritualize the text, and especially at this point. There was an actual woman named Jezebel. Because you tolerate the woman Jezebel. So don't spiritualize saying, oh, there's just the spirit of Jezebel since the Old Testament that's been influencing the world at that time. Let's not go there. There was a woman named Jezebel in the New Testament. Just like when the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, you know, as, as we're, when you're saying you... We're saying, no, that's, we're understanding it literally. We're accepting it for what it says. It says what it means. But we know that there's, there's a consistent story and theme from the Old Testament. So I'm going to argue when he says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel, that there was an actual woman named Jezebel who claimed to be a prophetess and taught the same things as the Jezebel in the Old Testament. So apparently there might have been two Jezebels in our world history, at least. The Jezebel in the New Testament, like the Jezebel in the Old Testament, taught and influenced the people of Israel to engage in Baal worship. And this is, this is precisely what John warned about in 1 John 4, verse 1. He writes there, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world and 
This would also include prophetesses. So when John says, do not believe every spirit, he's not necessarily talking about an invisible spirit that you don't see and they're talking to you. No, someone, soul, a being is talking to you and he's saying, do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every person who talks to you because, every, you know, especially if they claim to be a prophet or a prophetess, but test them. And how do we know? What is this person? So if anyone says, hey, I'm a prophet and I'm a prophetess, what are you saying? Test through scripture. What are you declaring? What do you say about Jesus? What are you saying about, right, scripture and the rest of scripture? So this New Testament Jezebel was influenced by the spirit of the Old Testament Jezebel and what they both did was they caused some bond servants to be led astray. So if we're following our rules of engagement, we're, we're taking it for what it says, but we know that there is, there is, a, there is a consistent uh, pattern. But this Jezebel New Testament prophetess probably knows about the Jezebel in the Old Testament in that spirit and was pretty much paying it forward and even using her name. Now let's look at my bondservants because this Jezebel led, Jesus said, my bondservants astray. Jesus said, my bondservants. My is a possessive noun. When you're saying that's mine, that's mine. It's possessive. He says, my bondservants astray. Bondservants is doulos, and that means slave. So in verse 20, Jesus is saying, you're, she's leading my slaves away. And we've covered this early on when we started our introduction, that in Revelation, Christ's slaves that are mentioned in this letter is the Apostle John, the believers in Thyatira, which we're studying here, the 144,000 sealed Jews, the Old Testament prophets, the two witnesses and prophets who arrive in the scene later. Moses is called his slave as well as glorified saints. So in the New Testament, Jesus is doulos, it may refer to the Jews, which is most of the time, I would say, angels or believers. And as I'm kind of going through not only this study, back into the New Testament, and now I'm back in the Old Testament, and I'm going back into Jesus' parables, and I'm looking at doulos, most of his parables, when he talks about a slave, are referring to Jews and angels predominantly. And believers are... You know how um, we'll say, well, believers, you're slaves of Jesus Christ, right? You might just hear this oversimplification. Yeah, we are sometimes called slaves, but you know who's called slaves most of the time? Jews, angels, those in an office, such as a prophet or an apostle, slaves, God's slaves. Is not Paul a slave, an apostle? He was a slave to the gospel, that that's a specific slave. So in verse 20, Jesus' doulos are Jewish believers in the assembly of the believers of Thyatira. So with that, let's look at verse 20, and let's call this the Katroha Amplified. Here's what verse 20 is communicating. Jesus says, but I have this against you. And this is certain believers in Thyatira. You have among you those who were given to their lust, provoked by the teaching of the woman Jezebel, the same spirit of the Old Testament Jezebel, who a self-proclaimed prophetess 
and she teaches and leads my bond servants, the Jews, astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols as their forefathers did when the kings of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked the Lord to anger by worshiping Baal. So in verse 20, what we're learning from this, there was Jews among the believers or the church in Thyatira that professed Christ as Messiah. They'll say, yeah, Christ is Messiah. But they were also given into the lusts of the flesh and were led astray by the teaching of the woman Jezebel. So you had Jews among them who engaged in sexual immorality in the temple worship there. And they offered and participated in the eating of things sacrificed to Baal. And he goes on to say in verse 21, he goes, I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. I, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. I, Jesus is speaking in the first person. Her, sticking with the rules of engagement, the self-proclaimed prophetess. There was a New Testament self-proclaimed prophetess named Jezebel, Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. And I mentioned this. In the example of Ahab, when Elijah pronounced judgment against Ahab and Jezebel, and Ahab repented, God relented on the judgment and postponed it. He did the same thing here. I gave her time. She didn't repent. So he's saying, I gave her time. She doesn't want to repent of her immorality. And we're going to see what's in store for her and her children. Verse 22, he goes, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. So here in verse 22, he says, Behold, I, Jesus is still speaking in the first person. He says, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. What does that mean? I will throw her on a bed of sickness. We'll throw her, let's be specific, I will throw Jezebel on a bed of sickness. We'll throw her is future tense. It's, this is, now we're starting to get prophecy here. I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness. When you see the term on the bed of sickness, remember he's the one with the eyes like a flame of fire. This is a warning of judgment and destruction. And to show that, I'd like to refer to the tares among wheat parable. And I'll let you know why, why was I drawn to this specific parable. But let, let's read it. We're all probably familiar with this. Matthew 13. We'll pick it up in verse 24. And this was after the parable of the sower and the seed explained. We'll pick it up in verse 24. So Jesus presented another parable to them, the large crowds, and he said this. He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field, in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and born grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landover, landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. 
And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there is the parable of the tares among wheat. And Jesus explains to us the meaning behind this parable. And the reason why I'm going to this parable is he said, remember he told, he said, he told Jezebel, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. And we're trying to understand, we, we're saying, okay, that's, that's prophecy. It's, well, it's future, so there's this prophecy undertone. And, uh, and we'll see why we were, um, we're going here to tares among wheat. And let's look at the explanation of this parable. Then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into his house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, to, and he said The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them, I should have highlighted that, will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Here's a truth. Do you know that we can't understand Revelation? We can't understand the study of end times apart from Jesus' parables. You can, you can say that for all of Scripture, but especially Jesus' parables. And you know, this what this was struck me before. Remember, he ends every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear. How does he end his parable? He who has an ear, let him hear. Connect them so that you can hear. Remember, Revelation is called the prophecy. The entire book of Revelation is prophecy. <laughs> and I came up with this term. It can be said that the entire book of Revelation is a prophetic parable. So if you ever wonder, why is Revelation so confusing, so convoluted? There's all these different views. Well, there's a prof- it's a prophetic parable. And in order to understand a parable, you have to understand the, uh, this parable. You have to understand the other parables. So the fact that he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. At least, you know, I didn't notice that up to, you know, up to going through these, you know, these studies, there is a connection. So the reason why I think a lot of the teachings and different views are out there is you're not connecting it with the parables. If you don't connect it with the parables, then you're going you're to come up with some other creative stuff. So to understand a prophetic parable, in addition to having solid disciplines, our ROEs, we need to consider the other parables taught by our Lord. Here's what drew me to the tares among wheat was the similar language that Jesus will throw his enemies into a furnace of fire. And just like here, Jesus will throw her on a bed of sickness. The will throw. So here was the explanation of the tares among wheat parable. He, he told us, here's what it means. 
The sower of the seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are sons of the kingdom. The sower of the tares is the devil. The tares is sons of the evil one. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. The wheat among tares is an end times prophecy. What is revelation? An end times prophecy. Jesus When he was teaching the parables, he said the kingdom of heaven may be like or may be compared, and he starts to give this parable. The tares among wheat was in end times. And we're studying here Revelation end times. He told his disciples during his earthly ministry what's going to happen at the end. He's doing the same thing here in Revelation. He's telling them also what's going to happen up to the end. At the end of the age, the devil and his sons, and all who practice lawlessness will be gathered up and burned with fire. So with this truth in mind, the truth behind this phrase, will throw her on a a bed of sickness, was not only warning against the Jewish believers in Thyatira who were led astray by Jezebel the prophetess, but it was a prophetic warning of impending judgment and destruction coming upon those who play harlot. Now here's where we're getting beyond the immediate. This was a prophetic warning of impending judgment and destruction coming upon those who play harlot with the world during the end times. Just like the Jews who played harlot with Jezebel's teaching in the New Testament were judged and killed, The Jews who played harlot in the world too will be judged and killed and Jesus says will be thrown into great tribulation. And I can understand how, I mean, Revelation just, you know, it's still intimidating for me because I'm like, man, this is just, it's just little old me. This is just, this is too much. But Revelation, like, first it's going to the immediate, then it goes all the way to the end and it comes back to the immediate. How do you know? when it's just here and it stops here and when it keeps on going. That's the challenge. So I can understand why there could be different views and interpretations. But at least with our disciplines, we're trying to minimize that. So I can tell you here, when he says, we'll throw her on the bed of sickness and tying in the uh, the, the tares of the wheat, the wheat and tares parable, and this connection of being will throw and let let him who has ears hear. I'm like, okay, no, this is beyond just this prophetess Jezebel who existed at that time. And this was a prophetic warning of those who play harlot with the world of this woman Jezebel. It's in the same way. And he will, just like he destroyed the people who were engaged in such acts, at the very end, the people who play harlot with the world will be thrown into great tribulation. And we know that now it's following the blowing of the seventh trumpet when we have the resurrection of all who have lived up to that point in time. So here's where kind of the, the exhortation. So if you're a believer in Thyatira, you know, Christianity, you're kind of, because of, you know, it's illegal, you're kind of living under the radar, you're not popular. What is popular are the gods and goddesses and the worship of even the emperor. But here's the exhortation. Even though that's the case and that's the culture, those in Thyatira are not to fear those gods, the Hephaestus, um, Hephaestus, the god of the blacksmiths and fire, for example. But they are to fear the judgment and destruction by the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So those in the world 
or not to fear the sons of the evil one and his antichrist when he arrives, but the one who will throw them and his children, including his daughter Jezebel, into the fiery furnace. And what's instructive for us, at least in this letter, is he's still the one with the eyes of flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And he is the one and only son of the true and living God. Fear him. Because he's the one. He's going to destroy the evil one. He's going to destroy the, you know, his children. And oh, Jezebel, he's going to destroy her and her children, destroy them too. Even though they're kind of powerful and running loose now, that won't be the case. So that, with that warning, that transitions nicely into verse 23. And I will kill her with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So verse 23, Jesus says, I, again, I, Jesus is still speaking. He says, I will kill her children. That's still future, right? That's still kind of this prophetic undertone. So Jesus will kill and destroy those influenced by the spirit of Jezebel and the allure of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And he says, all the churches will know, Genosco, not just Thyatira, not just the seven first century churches, but all the churches up to and including the end times will know Genosco through firsthand experience that Jesus will repay his enemies with vengeance and kill them with pestilence and will render everyone according to their deeds, works, or behavior, whether good or evil. Uh, So something to kind of keep in mind. So the New Testament prophetess Jezebel, Jesus gave her time to repent, and she would not. So even though she may have gone on for a period of time, there's going to come a time when the, you know, not only her, but those who were influenced by her teaching and were given in to the, the temptations of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that Jesus says, I will kill her, you know, I will put her on a bed of sickness, and I will kill her. After the seventh trumpet is blown, who's going to be part of the resurrection? This woman Jezebel. Who else will be part of that resurrection? We know, remember, it's going to be everyone who's lived up to that point in time. So those who committed adultery or um, who, who were led astray by our teaching, whether it's the Jews or whether it's even beyond them in the world, you will be raised and you will be thrown into great tribulation. So after the trumpet judgments, you get to the wrath judgments. Jezebel will go through the wrath judgments and those who follow her, including the evil ones, the sons of disobedience, as we've learned from the parables of our Lord. It's a pretty, pretty solemn warning. But he says, but, but and all the churches will know that I am he. No, think about this. No, like really, kind of take a step back. How will we know Genosco through firsthand experience? This isn't just uh, head knowledge. We're going to know through experience that Jesus is the one who searches the minds and the hearts and he will give to each one according to his deeds. When we are part of the mass resurrection, when we are raised, and when we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and we, we are glorified, and we see those who will be thrown into great tribulation, we will know 
that Jesus is the one who searches the minds and hearts, and He will give to each one according to their deeds. So those who are raised into a resurrection of judgment and destruction, we're going to see, I know, Lord, through experience, it is you who searches the minds and the hearts. We're going to praise God for finally avenging the blood of his saints, for finally defending his own name, even though he doesn't need any defending, for finally taking action, and for finally stopping from the worship of demons and Satan and all the variations. He says he's going to get his angels and he's going to take out of his kingdom those such things and he will establish his kingdom on earth. Thank you for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. Next time, we'll complete our look at the church in Thyatira and Jesus' promise to give those believers the morning star. If you've missed any part of our study, you can find all of them at our website, truthmatterschurch.org. And consider joining us for our study in person or via Zoom every Friday night. You can find out more at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.